You've entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Boy, the Jim Sparks interview created a tremendous amount of activity on the forums, Gene. People were very interested in how we questioned Jim, and they were fascinated by a lot of the information we got out of him that we haven't heard on other interviews. And the thing is, they were even asking questions that maybe we should pose during the course of a subsequent interview. I have to tell you, though, I'm amazed that he's agreed to come back, because I thought that after we did the interview, we made a few statements that were somewhat critical of his experiences, and we had some serious questions. Despite that, he seemed to be quite willing, quite eager to come back and talk to us. Well, I think it's stimulating to have an intelligent conversation about the topic, no matter who you're having it with. It's frustrating to me because just uh, recently I went to one of these MUFON meetings here in the New York area, Gene, and I have to tell you, I was frustrated by what I heard. People want to hear certain things, and if they don't hear those things, then basically they walk away. A couple of these people had been to the International UFO Congress, And they said that when David Jacobs made his presentation and talked about some of the more negative sides of the abduction scenario, that people were leaving the room. People were filtering out. They just didn't want to hear anything about the dark side of this phenomenon, Gene. And so this makes me wonder about the whole tone of the conversation. And, of course, we're going to get feedback from our listeners saying, "Uh oh, you guys are are complaining again. You're whining. I saw a letter or a message from someone saying, you're always whining. You're always complaining. Well, we're just trying to tell it as it is. And if that's what it has to be, if we have to complain about a situation that we don't like, we're going to complain about it. That's it. That's the way it is. It comes down to this. So much of any aspect of the discussion of the state of affairs right now is tends to be so polarized. You can't take any kind of a middle, sort of a grounded position on anything. People expect you to be either extremely into one side of the argument or the other. We constantly hear the term presenting both sides of the argument, as if any situation only had two possible explanations. This is something I, I personally find frustrating because ultimately, and we said it here on the show before, whatever the truth about the UFO situation ends up being, I think you and I will accept it as long as it is a verifiable, confirmable, a true truth. I hate to say that, but I think you and I, Gene, are interested in actually getting to some real understanding of this phenomenon. And maybe that's not even ultimately possible or achievable, but we've got to try, right? We'll certainly accept whatever possibilities come forth that can be demonstrated as factual. Certainly, mm-hmm. the common perception still by the majority majority of people who believe in UFOs is that they're spaceships. Well, if they're not spaceships, we'll accept that. If they're not interdimensional travelers, we'll accept that. If they're not crypto-terrestrials, we'll accept that as well. The question is, what is causing this to happen? And we want to find the answers. When it comes, for example, to people like Jim Sparks, contactee, abductees, whatever, are these experiences real? Do they have a psychological basis, some kind of medical basis? Epileptic seizure was one of the grounds you mentioned on the previous episode after Mr. Sparks departed the scene, there could be lots of possibilities, but we have to be prepared to accept them. And if you create a whole belief system over the UFO enigma, you're going to be disappointed somehow in the end because it's probably not going to be what you want it Hmm. to be. Exactly. And every time I hear people talking about this and they sort of default to the aliens from space explanation, I think to myself, outside of seeing these craft leaving the 
Earth's atmosphere. What further real proof do we have that this stuff is extraterrestrial sourced? We just don't have something solid that we can grab onto that says, look, this is definitive proof. Of course, we both know that in this field, definitive proof of any sort is just so elusive that to even make that claim that, you know, we're, we're looking for definitive proof. There was an article some years ago in a magazine called Flying Saucers by the late Ray Palmer, and he wrote, do the Martians see UFOs too? And what he was actually saying there is the fact that UFOs are seen in the vicinity or on our planet, not anywhere else. And therefore, he's suggesting they were intrinsic to our world and maybe not anywhere else. Or if there were inhabitants on those other planets, they had their own UFO phenomenon of one sort or another. Now, that's a pretty strange theory. Well, look, I mean, clearly, if some number of these things are coming from other planets, then obviously they're visiting all sorts of planets. They're not just coming to Earth. And if the things that we've seen on this planet indeed originate here from some unknown species or some hidden civilization, which I don't necessarily believe is true, but if they did, we've certainly seen the kinds of physics that would suggest that these craft could easily leave the Earth's atmosphere and indeed do. I think it's a good chance, Gene, that really what we're looking at is a combination of both sources of these things. I, I think that there's a good possibility that we're seeing creatures from other planets that maybe even have established long-term bases. I mean, if they've established bases before humans were humans on this planet, then whose planet is it really? Well, we're going to explore that and other subjects as we talk next on the Paracast to Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers, part two of the interview, coming up in a moment. Not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
So, Jim, you were just at the International UFO Congress. We'd love to know, uh, who did you hear there that you found compelling, and what did you think about some of the experiences that other people were telling that they had had? Did you attend all of the conferences? Did you listen to any of the other speakers? You and I were having a little short conversation earlier, and I had mentioned to you that in the 19 years that I've, I've gone through this, I made a decision you know, several years ago in the, in the beginning years to avoid several things, one, one of which is to watch movies on this subject, which, oh, it just irks me because that's, I, I want to see movies like that. Mm-hmm. To read books on the subject, I avoid that. To listen to other talks, and it has nothing to do with conceit or I think uh, I'm so special, just the opposite. It's just that so much has taken place, I just do my very best to avoid clouding any experiences that I've had with others. And I can see that can be done because from time to time I will talk to other people and I start hearing similarities and I try to avoid that. So as much as I wanted to sit and listen to the other speakers and, and other people sharing experiences during the conference. I, I did not do that. But as it turned out, in those uh, two days that I was there, they had booked me quite a few interviews and then uh, there was a book signing and so I pretty much preoccupied my time anyway. So no, I, I, unfortunately, I didn't have that opportunity and that's why I didn't. What kind of reactions did you get from people who were at the uh, Congress to what you had talked about there? Actually, I was very pleased to see that most of the folks that were there had already um, knew who I was, okay? Um, I had spoken in some conferences in the past, but uh, I did, I'd never really had that much media attention on me, and I was real pleased to see that most of the individuals that had uh, attended that particular uh, speaking engagement of mine were pretty much uh, had some a, a lot of knowledgeable background information on the story, and my story. Quite a few of them had, uh, had even read the book, and so a lot of the questions and the, and the way that people reacted were, were, were well, well thought out before they even met me in person. I was also surprised to see that and it made me feel good because I'm, I am concerned about uh, the rainforest and I was uh, happy to see that there was a European person interviewing rep- uh, representing Italy and there was another one another lady who had came there so uh, just uh, because of the spark story the keepers and so forth and there was another lady from Japan who uh, wanted to put something together for Japanese TV so she was associated with television over there and she was telling me that, that in Japan I guess it's so homogenous that they don't even like to read English, but she wanted to do a show where it can, where we could be translated and also um, for the Japanese and also to translate in words to where they can actually read the book. So that may be in the works pretty soon. Great. So it was all overall very productive and, and very nice. There's been a lot of discussion on our forums about the show. There were all sorts of lingering questions about some of the stuff we had talked about. Something that I'm still really curious about, Jim, is more details about what you feel about the language that you were taught and the reasons that that it was taught to you, assuming that we can actually determine exactly what that language was all about. When you communicated with reptilian beings and it was all telepathic in nature, it's, it's not clear to me how the training of the language sort of interacted with the telepathic messages you were getting both from the gray creatures and from the reptilian creatures. So I know I asked you on the first interview, but I'm going to ask you again. 
can you tell us a little bit about what you feel was the real reason for learning the language that you took? How many? I mean, it was like six years just spent on that language, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it went various different things too, but no, no. But so, what's your feelings about sort of the purpose of learning the language? Well, those minds. And so, when I say those minds, speaking right now specifically, uh, again, what's commonly referred to as gray, they are efficient, and meaning that because you've heard me say that they can think ten to a hundred times faster to process data ten to a hundred times faster, understand things the same way. For the most part, it's pretty intimidating to be a person, a human being, around minds like that because they uh, can anticipate a question barely before you can think about answering it. And then, then if they're in the quote-unquote, for lack of a better word, mood, respond to an answer just before you're about to ask a question and you just sit there and go, man, I can't believe this. But they're so efficient, they'll just do so many things in, in one clean sw- swipe so that the language itself, I had no clue that what the heck they were doing to begin with those first several months and why they were even bothering. To answer the first part of your question, interacting with them telepathically, uh, and particularly when you mentioned the reptilians, again, that those are commonly referred to as reptilian scale right. ones, but they, they never call themselves that, and the other ones never call themselves grays. Star people and the keepers was the best I've ever gotten out of both of those groups. But nonetheless, when they're telepathic in that respect, it has zero to do, for the most part, of anything that was pounded into me, particularly in those early years with the gray. One thing about the, what the grays are doing with this thing was what I started to understand, because I thought in my mind, well, this is some alien language, so that's, that's the only way I can interpret it. But as this thing went on, they were wanting me, and it was exercises. It was a constant exercise, and they were motivating me in ways to learn it, which was to rely more on this symbolic form of communication in your mind versus them just telepathically talking to you. And as each letter was converted into a symbol form, that it's something that, that we don't normally do, and as it went through our alphabet, so to speak, with no Q's and Z's for whatever reason. Remember I mentioned earlier that they based a lot of this on punishment and reward? Right. right. So the Training. more I would rely on this symbolic form of communicating with them, the reward sessions would be uh, better or more beneficial. So it was like a middle ground sort of way of communicating without them just me either yelling back if I had the vocal ability, if they didn't numb my vocal cords because I screamed and cussed and I came up with cuss words. I invented new cuss words for those guys. Anytime I could yell, <laughs> I cuss at them. And then they would paralyze my voice and then it would be telepathic. But they wanted me to, re- again, rely more on this other way of communicating. It- it's ambiguous and it covered so many areas that I'm focusing on a couple and then as I go along then some other things start coming to mind. So one of, the w- of which was to rely more on that. So as the months turned into years, in those early years, then I started seeing that, I don't know if I mentioned it in the last interview, but that where they had shown um, myself about 20 pages of text. that I mention that to you and your, uh, your friend? Yeah, yeah. I did. And then I started seeing where that can be shrunk down into something very small. And again, it's like I mentioned earlier, if I, I were to say to you the movie Old Yeller in a right. nanosecond, right. Yeah, that whole, right. yeah, that whole movie would come to mind. Just so many, I would say twofold, but it was just so many fold. Now, when it came to communicating with the reptilians, they did something that was pretty unusual because my interaction with the reptilians percentage-wise is relatively very small compared to the, in the last 19 years where I'll, I say it pretty commonly, you know, anywhere from 95 to 97% of interaction have been with the greys and the other 3 to 5 has been with these reptilians. Probably really 
definitely less than that. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Sparks, the author of The Keepers. Jim, go ahead and explain this further with the interaction. Okay. What was interesting about the first interaction with the uh, reptilians, everything about them was different. For starters, the technology to take you from point A to point B was extremely different. It started off as quite like the technology the Greys had used over the years over and over and over and over again that I was intimately familiar with. The whipping world whirling sound, but it was a lot lower in tone inside my head. The uh, acceleration was much, much more gentler, so I, I even knew from the beginning something was pulling me that was different. I had blacked out like I normally do, but I had I came to consciousness before I got to point B, so I was in the process of going from point A to point B, which was when I opened my eyes at one point and I was several hundred or several, several hundred feet above point B, which was a, a an area that, that looked like from the air to be, uh, and I thought it was just the most peculiar place to be brought to. It was a field, and it looked like an old abandoned carnival yard because I could see what was left of a, of a, of a wooden roller, dilapidated roller coaster, and I could see some of the um, game stands, like uh, like sheds, metal sheds or wooden sheds. I think metal one, I can't remember which one they were, you know, dilapidated and neglected. So I came conscious, actually, from a, a, above the ground, seeing about a dozen beings in a semicircle standing on the ground as if they were waiting for me and I didn't feel air I don't remember the coolness of the night or anything like that I just remember that I came conscious and I saw that I was approaching an area I lost consciousness again now that right there is unusual so with the grays when you get pulled you're wherever you're at if you're in your car if you're in your living room if you're in your bedroom wherever you may be when that process happens and it reaches its height you black out and when you come to you're at point B there's no in between and it's extremely rough on your system so it told me that what, what whatever I was in store for with these guys, that yes, they were extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional, dimensional, but at the same time, they were using a different method, a different technology to transport matter or people. When I came to, before I opened my eyes, which was different, was I can hear them, a voice telepathically talking to me before I had the ability to open my eyes or to be fully conscious. I could hear the voice uh, talking to me in my head, uh, which was unusual because usually when it's telepathic with the grays, I'm wide-eyed awake and conscious and I'm transported and then the communication starts. So it, it was as if I was there for quite a period of time and conversation was taking place to my subconscious, but my consciousness was becoming aware of this subconscious conversation and then I opened my eyes. Now there was something else that they did different in that telepathic communication, which was 
Well, the first thing that was different was I saw these beans. They were in a semi-circle. I would say there was anywhere from eight to a dozen of them, and they were huge. They were the size of linebackers, just giant things. And I just said, man, you got scale. Because that's see, I didn't even know what a reptilian was. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. I didn't keep up with that kind of thing. I just said, man, you guys got scales. And they were all looking at one individual, like focusing their brain power, the group, on one individual. And to make me not be scared, because they're faces were scary looking um, that their foreheads protruded way out and, and in lumpy disformed shape like their cognitive abilities with their forehead like that part of their brain was much larger than ours and they had projected something like a hologram of a human face over the face of the one that they were all focusing on and it was moving in holographic form or movie, movie form uh, like a human being's mouth was talking even though the message was telepathic but with the funny part about it, and well, it's kind of funny to me now, it's just kind of weird to me then, it's still weird when I think about it, was the fact that the lip movement on the hologram was out of sync with the telepathic words that they were saying in that first meeting. Hey, I want to ask you a question here, but it occurs to me. While all this stuff was going on, and especially the initial experiences where you're taken through a wall, you're you're awakened at night, that kind of thing, how did this affect your family life? Oh, it was, may I use the word hell on uh, the air? Yes, that's acceptable, sure. It was a 100% absolute, hideous, traumatic, disruptive, living hell. It was an endless, living nightmare. Myself, personally, uh, I've always been known to be down-to-earth, logical, honest. That's how my friends have always known me. That's how my family has always known me. That's how anybody in business had always known me. And I went through um, a stages with because family, uh, you know, family finally came around to accepting a lot of things. And I guess it's human nature, and so did friends and so forth. When they start hearing these things from other credible sources, but when I was blurting out everything that was going on with me, they just, it didn't matter. The church said it's demonic. And I was at the time a regular church attender, which I am now no longer. I just have a different point of view on those things. But at the time I was, this is the devil. Rejection there. My friends, you know, said, Jim, you're a perfectly normal guy, but you, you, you flipped. You're crazy. My friends thought I was crazy. My wife would be gone for long periods of time, several months at a time. So I was, she couldn't deal with it. So I, in those early years, I'm referring to now, things have really flipped around. It's a total day and I think, but in those years, I was a loner in this thing. My parents, my family couldn't even begin. And I was really hurt more than anything because I just couldn't, what I couldn't believe is that they couldn't even accept one iota of what was happening to me. Business-wise, I had a very good thriving business. Fortunately for me, um, because I was always a hard worker, I worked 12-hour days. Everything came to me. I earned it. Uh, I didn't come from a family of wealth. I got out there and I just made it. And fortunately for me in those years, I had made enough money for a buffer so I could keep a roof over my head and pay bills and keep the power on but you know I was draining my bank account regularly and another fortunate thing for me in those years was that I did have one business that was a partnership J&J Properties and my partner figured I lost my mind but he kept our business together so I was still getting uh, an income other than what I had put away and uh, what I had learned was the fact that just keep your mouth shut about this stuff now 
But before that, physically, it, it took its toll. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, nights, day and night, and day and night, and day and night, I couldn't sleep. I was so rattled. Then I, uh, I stopped eating, and um, I inevitably got to the point where I kind of joke about it now, but I had looked like what I called the last living days of Howard Hughes. <laughs> my, oh, boy. My hair, I mean, for real, my hair just got long and ratty. I wasn't bathing. I wasn't showering. I mean, I really got to the point of total, I guess you could say almost 100% lost it. My fingernails were getting long. I just, I was so rattled. But um, I had woke up one morning and I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw all this weight I had lost I said, and how this was affecting me. And I said, I said, because I've always been strong. And I said, you know, Jim, what's happening here, you cannot do anything about these guys are not going to let you go. And so I'm going to stop letting myself go. When these things happen, I'm going to get through it as quickly, efficiently as possible. I'll cooperate, whatever it is, because I learned that the, the faster, the better I cooperated, the quicker it got over with. I wasn't going to talk about this to anybody anymore. I was just going to let it happen because there's nothing I can do. And then whammo, I turned around and you know got myself back to relative normal and stopped talking about this stuff to people. And what I learned is if you don't talk about it, they think you're perfectly fine. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Jim Sparks, the author of The Keepers, which describes his experiences with non-human creatures. It's subtitled An Alien Message for the Human Race. Jim, question for you. In the book, you say that it looked like your wife at the time was having some sort of abduction experiences as well. Did you guys talk about this at all? What In the book, you say that you guys did talk about this. So what, what happened in those conversations and uh, that's a good question uh, there was no doubt that she had in her that she was having interaction with them by no choice of hers that I believe to be so the MO with these guys at the time 
was to break you down so they can work with you. The MO was, and I've always used these three words to fit it perfectly, fear, isolation, and confusion. Fear, isolation, and confusion to the point where you get you become so discredited amongst you know other human beings that no matter what happens to you, nobody's going to believe you anyway. But see, I didn't realize how they worked at the time, and I fell for every trick. But I fought them tooth and nail and came back. But the point is, they were definitely pulling um, Teresa. Her name is Teresa. And there was no doubt that I would see her from time to time on board, and I would only get glimpses of her for a few seconds. There was a longer occasion one time that was a bit intimidating for me. I won't go into that because that would take too long right now. But there was times that I definitely saw her. When I would be back home or when the occasion was over and I brought it up to her, she would respond in, um, in a way that that was not her. When you, when you know somebody um, and they're face-to-face intimately for, for many years, and you know and love them, you pretty much know how they're going to respond or interact in their body motions and things like that uh, to things. You ask questions or when you're talking. But when it came to the subject, she responded quite the same as almost as if, well, not almost as if, she was like uh, mind-controlled or brainwashed, not like somebody was pushing a button at the time and saying, say this. It was like she, as if she had a session with them to where whenever I would ask or probe or anything like that, she would respond the same way, and which her face would just turn um, to a face that I didn't know to be my wife, and then she would respond with the same stupid words, which were, I don't know what you're talking about, or I have no idea what you're talking about. I wouldn't know about anything like that, almost mechanical. Now, myself, I was in those early, in the early times, I just had to do everything I could, at least I thought I did, until I realized something, which is her way of coping with denial and leave it alone because it makes it worse. But before that, I would just, you know, I gently I'd have her by the shoulders and I'd look in her face and I'd go, Teresa, come on, you know what you saw. I mean, I would be in tears. And then every now and then, every rarely now and then, in that, those beginning times, she would break out of that trance-like state. And I can never, I'll never forget one thing, one time what she told me, she says, Jim, I know, we're just not allowed to talk about it. And I mean, this extreme fear was on her face. We're not allowed to talk about it. And when I saw that on her, there, there was a sense of normalcy about her again. I just said to myself at that point, hey, if I, oh, what I did, forgot to share with you was the fact that when I would get to those moments where, where she would start to open up and talk about it, she would all mm-hmm. of a sudden go into a violent rage, which was not like her. She would just like go into this other person. And so everything about it was miserably uncomfortable to try and communicate with Teresa. So I had gotten to the point where, my God, whatever it is these guys are doing, and this was at that time, they, the effect is much more overwhelming on her. She is getting it wiped out of her memory. She's able to cope with this stuff because she's not even remembering it. And if you start bringing these memories to the surface, they got her to the point where she uh, she reacts in a way that's just not good. So I determined at that point, like, hey, back off of Teresa, back off of asking her, back off of questioning her, just observe when you see her from time to time and don't even say anything to her. So inevitably that's how that ended up. And it made getting through this uh, in those early years a lot easier. What ended up happening with your marriage with Teresa? 
unrelated to the uh, phenomena. Well, well, I shouldn't say that really. It definitely uh, built a wedge between her and I for many years. And then again, I learned that just don't talk about it, don't say anything to her. And you know, the, the marriage was almost relatively normal. We separated issues un, unrelated to this and somewhat related to this. About don't hold me to it by the year exactly, but we separated for seven years and then finally divorced about a year and a half or two years ago. So, so we really haven't been together in like eight or nine years, and definitely divorced in the last year and a half to two years. So, unfortunately, it ended up uh, in a divorce. But we're the closest friends, best friends. We get along fine. She lives on the other side of the country. She lives in Georgia, and I live in uh, Nevada. But we, we talk to each other. Ash, it's good to hear because I can imagine this kind of thing would leave people not wanting to talk to each other. Has she ever sought any kind of knowledge about this? Has she, has she ever? considered undergoing regression hypnosis to try to get a handle on these experiences? How has she processed these experiences in the long term? Interestingly enough, now that, uh, and I and I stay away from conversations with her on this, I just, but hmm. every now and then, in, in conversations when we're talking, she'll say, you know, Jim, I remember when you were going through this, and you were going through that, and you were going through this, and she'd say, uh, I'm not quoting her exactly, but some of the things that I was telling her was going on as early years, she says, and now I'm, uh, um, she's almost oblivious to my conferences or talks and these interviews. I don't say, hey, tune into this channel. or I, I, I just keep that away from her because it's it's not the main topic of what we talk about. But on her own, she'll mention these things from the past and say, you know, you were trying to tell me something. And she says, you know, now I saw a television show or I read somewhere about this, 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 and that. And she says, and now I'm starting to see that maybe some of the things that, uh, that you were trying to explain were really real and really happening and I just didn't you know that's the kind of the way we are now to bother her with this and every, after everything that we went through in those early years just not even bring it bring it up just isn't necessary I've, I mean I've, my interaction with these beings have evolved so far past those traumatic years uh, I, I kind of call those first six years uh, alien boot camp Ooh, boy. Yeah, you, it, you were telling us yeah. that before <laughs> to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me tell yeah. our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers, which is subtitled An Alien Message for the Human Race. And for those who don't remember or haven't heard our show before, earlier this month, in the month of March, we had about a 90-minute conversation with Jim Sparks. He's returning for the sequel. 2.0. Jim, here's a question for you. And think about this very carefully. When you interacted with the two types of greys, and when you interacted with the reptilian be beings, what did you smell when this was going on? 
when you say two types of grays, and I don't blame you for stating the question that way. The, the short ones, the tall ones. We know we have the two different sizes of beings. One where androids is what I mean, and the tall ones, I think, are the grays, and I think the little okay. ones, I believe to be, are just created beings for tasks. So, now this is, in, in my experience, in my opinion, I could be wrong, but the smaller ones to me are half biological, half robotic, and I, and I believe they're just created beings to do, to do the work. I think uh, socially and scientifically, they've evolved to the point where they don't have a problem with that. Right. We covered like this in the last episode. Yeah. 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 Smells. That's a good yeah. one. The smells, particularly in the early years where I would be sat in front of that bench or sat on that bench and this the table and everything I described without going into all that detail, but it was a room on board, was uh, the, the air would be almost normal at first, like um, relatively comfortable, relative uh, low humidity. My skin in the beginning, um, usually wasn't sweaty or anything like that, but the way the sulfur smelling, uh, like striking a match, sometimes vinegary smelling, coupled with unfortunately my own body odor, because what would happen is I was under these intense and traumatic, every, t- every scenario in those early years was intense and traumatic, and they didn't circulate the air, but every, and now I had, but every anywhere from every 30 minutes or to an hour or sometimes longer. So in this room, you know, you're, you're with carbon dioxide would build up, the humidity just from my body would build up in the air, uh, the odors would build up in the air and become much more pungent, and then the air became thick and miserably hard to breathe. Uh, I could be sweating like crazy where I wasn't before, and just about when you think you can't take any more of that nasty air, there would be a a whoosh of fresh air and then again it would be these periodic periods of fresh to mostly stale fresh to stale so it wasn't like uh, being in a a jet air commercial jet aircraft where the air is constantly being filtered and cooled or warmed or whatever the case may be which is kind of interesting I think to me in a a science standpoint how they did the atmosphere or the breathing atmosphere on board which was they would basically let that nasty air stay there for a long period of time and then whoosh it out with a blast of fresh air how about around the reptilians uh, what about them sir i'm sorry smell did they smell like anything what did I you smell when any, you were around them i did not notice any smells from them none whatsoever actually i'm going to ask you what's going to sound like a silly question go ahead sir but i'm really i'm just it's going to sound strange but i'm very curious in the longer you don't have to call me sir call me david Okay, uh, <laughs> sir is far <laughs> too formal <laughs> okay when you were in these long training sessions where they were you know doing the the language stuff did you ever have to go to the bathroom did i ever have to go to the bathroom i never went yeah. to the bathroom i never went to the bathroom i never drank any water i didn't go to the bathroom and you know what i have um just myself naturally i don't know if this has much to do with the tea in china so to speak <laughs> but my bladder is pretty good and i I can go, even now, I get up in the morning, I I drink a cup of coffee, maybe a cup and a half. Um, I drink liquids all day long. I go through my entire day all day long. I'll come home at night, and then I may go. So, you know, and it doesn't, it's not offending me to talk about it. So going to the bathroom was, if I did, I could have gone in myself, not that I have any memory of that. But then, since we're getting kind of getting into um, this aspect of it, it was very common 
in, in almost every case at the end of uh, before you got to go home that during any period that they would extract semen and of right. course liquid would be coming out of out of your penis and, and out of your system so what could have been mixed with urine I really couldn't tell you but the thing I've always observed about particularly the grays is I've never seen them taking any liquids they never offered me any liquids mm-hmm. I've never seen them taking any food and I don't know how they would but the little mouse but I don't I don't know how what energizes those guys or how how they do it and no so I didn't no no water no food no nothing just nasty crappy air for long periods of time followed with uh, whooshes of fresh air so I would have thought they would have offered you some uh, some chocolate but uh, <laughs> David you know has this thing for chocolate I wanted to tell you this this is one of our big secrets here on the show that, that David will travel the world for chocolate uh, well, so. you know, maybe I'll, I'll I'll try to keep that in mind, see what maybe they can come up with uh, one day. <laughs> Jim, what's your health been like overall during your life? Not bad. Not bad? Considering considering everything, not bad. Ha- have I you think, ever been tested for any kind of seizures or epileptic condition? No. Not been no. tested for anything like that? No. Mm-mm. What about in your family, like your parents? How's their health? My mother passed away a couple of years ago. What is uh, um, in my family that was passed down to me is even when I was 18 years old is uh, high blood pressure mm-hmm. and I think that strongly contributed to my mother's demise unfortunately mm. and my father's uh, has high b- blood pressure my mom had high blood pressure and I even did when I was like 18 19 so I've taken um, a pill a day the same medicine well it was one kind of medicine for like the first 20 years and then the last whatever 15 or years or so I've been taking uh, a daily uh, blood pressure medication that's the only um, that's it pills or anything like that I take I was just curious about that yeah I gotta tell you though there was a period that I think here's what I what I'm seeing out there is that there's no question there's no doubt that absolutely 100% to this person purely scientific that other dimensions exist there's clearly no doubt that these dimensions occupy the somehow the same space and, and but not necessarily the same time as ours meaning that I felt for many years that I wasn't wasn't aging like I should age there's definitely other dimensions there's no doubt and um, I've seen human beings in these dimensions from what I perceive to be uh, different periods of time and, and, and what I believe I've learned over the years and to me it's just really fascinating is that once you have the technology to cross that line to to be a living biological living tissue be it people be it animal be it whatever it is to go into these other dimensions though so a lot of the laws of physics don't apply as they would here and also time is not the same because you can spend hours and hours and hours and hours in those dimensions or different places and only a few minutes would pass when they would bring you back and uh, I hope I'm not going too far to the left with this but see that's what also has me 100% convinced not even 99 and I never would have believed it until I experienced that that there's no question that time travel is not just possible it is because I did have an episode whether they did it on purpose or whether it was by accident where I was sent back I, I was gone and uh, the abduction lasted a couple of hours and I was brought back approximately two to three minutes before I left This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. 
Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Sparks. He's the author of The Keepers, subtitled An Alien Message for the Human Race. And now, and I'll remind you fully about what you said so we don't lose our train of thought here, and that is we're talking about you going back very briefly through time. It's an experience that has stood out and will stand out for the rest of my life. And perhaps uh, if we're all lucky here, we'll be alive when time travels an everyday thing like it is for them. And I have to kind of set the, it's like a backdrop for this one. I was laying on the sofa with my hand up against my head, my elbow on the sofa, and I was watching television in the living room. And all the sights and sounds and everything to being pulled took place, which is the whipping, whirling sound and the sensation in my stomach and blacking out and then being on board for a couple of hours. Now, before, and there's a reason for me telling you this, because this is what makes it the whole thing interesting, how you can occupy the same place at the same time and there's two U's there, like I saw it. I see how it works. Before I got pulled, I had, and there's a reason for me telling you this, it'll make sense in a minute. I got off the sofa, I walked across the living room, I wanted to get something to drink and a snack out of the refrigerator in the kitchen. I got off the sofa, walked across the living room, we had a fish tank, an, an island pass-through type uh, counter, and we had an aquarium on the counter. I stopped for a moment, looked at the fish, went around the aquarium and the counter, walked into the kitchen, opened the refrigerator door, the light came on as it normally would, tinkered around the refrigerator, grabbed a a bite of something to eat, and I drank a little soda. I put it back in the refrigerator, shut the door, walked back around through the living room and went back on the sofa. Again, in the position I was telling you, which was my hand was on my head and my elbow was on the sofa. I was turned sideways watching television. Now the pulling or I got abducted, or the pulling technology took place. I was gone for two hours, at least. When they brought me back, they brought me back into the same place I left, which was on the sofa. But where I went into, like, immediate shock, because now I'm totally 100% conscious. Here I am, I'm in my living room again. That's not an unusual thing to happen, being pulled. But I saw myself, the back of myself, standing in the living room floor, walking towards the kitchen and it just stopped almost stopped my heart and and here here i could see myself in the flesh and i stopped at the aquarium and i was looking at the fish and i was thinking to myself my god that's me and uh, and that's in other words out of body uh, out of body here a lot of people like to say that 
But what I know what was happening was the fact that my physical self was placed back two to three minutes before I had left, and my that was the physical self that was not out of my body. Hey, I could be wrong about a lot of this, but this is what I was seeing. It's like, a, like a doppelganger, basically, where it was you looking at you. I was looking at me, but here's the you know the, the thing about they say if you go back in time, if you could, the paradigm about if you shot your father, would you still be born? You know, and things of that nature. Sure, the time paradigms, yeah. Sure, but I'm watching, maybe this will help for the science-minded, because now I'm looking at myself, what I was more scared of than anything was the fact that, could this other me see me? So I'm watching myself, and I'm holding my breath, watching myself look at the aquarium like I had done earlier. I watched myself go into the kitchen, and here's this thing that just startled me. I heard, physically heard the refrigerator door open, and I physically saw the light come on again. So it kind of killed, for me, the outer body thing. Do you see what I'm saying? And I heard myself tinkering around in the refrigerator, that how I had done earlier. This gets really weird. I saw myself drinking the soda, putting it back in the refrigerator, shutting the door, and then turning around to come back into the living room. And that's when my heart just started going boom, 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 because I'm thinking, oh, my God, is me going to see me? And when the other me sees me, what will it do? And as I walked around the kitchen, or as I saw myself walking back around the kitchen, heading towards the living room, turning the corner where the aquarium was to face me, it couldn't see me, as if I was not there. And that self just came walking towards me, which was frightening the pure wits out of me. And as it became about maybe two to three feet to go lay on the sofa like it was going to go sit on me, that me started becoming transparent, like I could see through it, and then disappeared. So what I've come to, and again, I'm not a scientist, but what I've come to with all of this, you guys, is that you can occupy the same space at the same time as far as time is concerned, but the, the other essence or the other time that you're in doesn't recognize or see one can see one but one the other one can't see the other hmm. so make something out of that but that's what happened so it's not going to be like the science fiction concept where both of you meet each other at one point in time and you both just vanish i think it's impossible and now of course i only got that little blurb and that was just for a couple of minutes and but it, that little blurb tells such a gigantic picture and so yes i i couldn't agree with you anymore that that one is not aware the other one is there so it kind of killed the idea in, in my mind of can you actually interfere with the past and actually change the future now I know that I could see all the physical things take place I could hear the sounds I could see the light I could see my other self and I know I you know I got pound on my chest I'm as real as real can be watching this stuff and yet, yet at the same token that side does it is not even aware that you're there so God only knows how many people from the past or the future because I know that I know the time travel is a common thing with grays and and all of them it's like remote control on the TV it's no big deal in fact I, I would say it's almost considered a boring thing, but one, one isn't really interacting with the other. Jim, I have one question about one detail. You, you were sitting on the couch, and you were watching this, and so when the other you came back into the room, what you were afraid of was that you were going <laughs> to, that's going to sound strange, you were going to sit on you, basically. That I was going <laughs> That you were going to sit on you. Yes, that I was right. just going to, right, come to me and okay. because... I'm just curious, because I want to understand. <laughs> I understand. At what, at what point did... 
the other you, tell me about when you said it, it, it was like two or three feet away from you, so you didn't have a, any kind of a thing where it started coming towards you and there was any kind of a weird sensation. None Basically, whatsoever. None. None. Not to jump the gun. None. And it was, yeah. as you get, I, I'm, I'm about as down to earth as can be relative to, well, being pulled you know, to other places. And I, I can only call it as I see it. And I, and I, I try so strongly not to fill in any gaps with what I think may be or except from what I've observed for a long period of time and then I'll say hey I believe this to be so and then you get the best out of it that you can but clearly uh, from the beginning all up to the point where, where that other me got close to me it was as solid as solid could be. It would be like you looking at, uh, you know, your friend or, or mm-hmm. a family member or anybody else. But the, but what I was paying attention to was because so many strange things that has happened over the years with myself and these guys and the technology that they use. I was more overwhelmed and concerned about the other me seeing me and what it would do because I knew I could handle it. <laughs> you know, what would this other one do when it came back and faced me? Would it go and you know have a heart attack? Would the other me go into shock because what am I doing on the sofa? But but the other thing that was extremely interesting to me was the fact that I could hear the refrigerator door open and close. I could see the light go on. I could clearly hear the sound of the tinkering inside the refrigerator and, and the metal can of the soda being placed back in there and so forth. And I was watching myself in the beginning part of observing the fish exactly as I had done. But what amazed me was I did not expect, well, I didn't expect any of this, but what I did not expect was I was certain that that other self would be physical and physically touch me or sit on me or whatever, just like you had asked. I did not expect it to fade away and disappear. Jim, the first time we had you on and I... And I asked you about the future humans coming back. You sort of alluded to something, but you didn't really tell us what that something was. I told you that I that I had some problems with this. I know a lot of other people who have read the book have posed some of these questions online. This idea of these humans coming back from the future. And again, you sort of alluded to something about that. Could you give us any information at all? Okay, I can tell you a story that had taken place that then, then you can kind of see the, the how these things, well, this is how it started to evolve. I had gone someplace in town when I went in, and it was a place where there's lots of people, a busy place. I decided I was going to have a beer. And as I came into this place, there was an individual, and I'll never forget the words he used, and I, I'm, I'm happy to share with this with you guys tonight in your audience. This individual was grody, like a bum. He was dirty. He was wearing gross clothes, filthy clothes. He was leaning up against the wall near the entrance of this place as I was going in. But when I saw him, one thing about that I've learned about people from the future when they come back is they're half, they'll communicate with me half telepathic and half verbally. And it's, it's something that clarifies what they are so that if anyone's listening to any of the conversation, it's not going to make any sense. Are you following what I'm saying there? So if I were to say, hi, hi, how are you telepathically to anybody observing, I'm not saying anything to you. And then you would respond, I'm fine right. to a person and wouldn't make any sense. Okay. But what started this is I saw this individual and the telepathic communication was, I'm here. I was just there, came back from the 1800s. And I said to myself, what the hell is this? This is in the beginning of starting to see these individuals. I went and sat down in like a bar-like area, and I ordered the beer, and I said to myself, oh, God, I just don't want this guy anywhere around me. Now, 
I didn't say one verbal word to this person. He, he got up, and now I know that they dress gross, they dress grody, they smell on purpose, all this kind of stuff, so people won't want to stare at them or know who they are. So they disguise themselves at times. And I'm not saying it's, this is the uh, way they do it all the time, to be so repulsive that people just aren't going to pay attention to them. He came and he sat next to me. No words were exchanged, and then, but here were his words. Now, i never seen this person in my life. I know what I heard him say to me telepathically. I'm completely ignoring this guy. I don't know what the heck's going on. I just know it was strange. I know he telepathically said something. It was a person who was kind of gross. And he sat next to me, and he goes, the eyes. And I'm not saying nothing. I'm just sitting there, and I'm holding this glass of draft beer in my hand. I haven't even took but one sip of it. And he goes, those eyes, he says. He says, and I'm now I'm seeing an image in my mind. I'm seeing a, um, a gray, a worker being. He goes, have little brains. Now, this is some guy just saying this out of nowhere. He says, those eyes take up the brain. He says, they're not smart at all. They're just eyeballs. He says, remember this. He says, they're just parasites. How do you say it? They're parasites with continuous memory. That's all they are parasites with continuous memory what he was saying to me was that don't he was referring to the gray drones of the worker beings as something not to hold in super high regard or, or, or as to something being super special that was one of my first interactions with an individual who I knew was not from this time I'm a little bit tight-lipped and and I hope that you can forgive and understand why I'm this way I'm a little bit tight-lipped about episodes that are relatively fresh because I've learned this over the years. I purposely let several months, sometimes up to six months go by, before I'll speak about certain interactions. And the reason I do this is because, number one, I like to see where it's going to evolve. So when I get in situations like this, if I'm going to write about something or if people are going to, when people interview me like you guys do in depth, which are, your questions are just amazing to me, it keeps me thinking and I love it. But so that I can come up with something that at least starts to make sense when someone asks me a question and you can get what you can get out of it. And, and another main reason why I stay tight-lipped with recent episodes and interactions is because I want the trail to grow cold, meaning that if something's going on and it's new and different, I'm extremely sensitive to it, and I don't want that ruined. I don't want anybody interfering with it. I don't want anybody following me around. I don't want all these detectives trying to find these guys because they're not stupid, and they're not likely to be around where they can get caught. And so I'll let the trail grow cold for several months on purpose too so in a sense that's kind of what I'm doing with you now and I don't mind maybe, perhaps maybe another time sharing um, some interaction with what I know to be individuals from either the near future or the distant future what I don't know yet and what I want to know and this is just a strong goal of mine what I want to know is what is what I'm seeing and are these individuals what I'm seeing which I know to be from another time and travel time did we as a, as a whole Obviously, humans made it into the future, but did just right. half a percent of the globe make it, of the six billion or however many there is? Or did all six billion of us make it? Did only maybe a few hundred make it? You know what? So what I really want to know with all my heart, soul, mind, and spirit is how many of us made it through 
whatever may come, hopefully not cataclysmic and, and everything, because there's such a strong, strong, strong emphasis on, A, the rainforest, and at least for me. So my mission is the rainforest, as I mentioned to you guys earlier, which was like, hey, do everything you can to save the rainforest. So I, I'm sensitive about not letting uh, outside things interfere so I can get some answers so, you know, I can share these things with other people. Hey, that's it. Thank you very much, Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers, an alien message for the human race. And I think after this, well, we're going to have to have you on once again. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Jim. Sure. My pleasure. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're here with Rob Fitzgerald, the host of the Dead Science Podcast. Rob, you chose a very interesting and some would say very strange topic to do a podcast about. How, young man, did you ever get interested in the topic of death? Well, the podcast idea, I decided I was going to do a podcast. And then I decided if you're going to do it, find something that would be interesting and something you know. And I kind of went through my life inventory and found out, geez, I keep always ending up with death and death around me, and it's not a big deal. And I knew I had a real healthy outlook on it, so I said, that's the subject. Let's do a show on that. <laughs> of all the things, of all the experiences and the interests, it's kind of interesting you would come up with death as, would you call it a hobby or would you call it more of a of an interest? Or what's that line, well, I suppose? It, yeah, it's a, it's a strange line. It actually was neither. It just it always seemed to work out that way, that something would happen and I'd be in the middle of it, and I never had a problem with it, and I noticed my outlook on it was different than most people around me. You know, a family member, it didn't totally destroy me, and I thought that was kind of weird, or when I was doing investigations, I didn't have a problem with, you know, dead people and being around it, and I just noticed my, my, my outlook's different, so there must be a reason, so kind of looking at that, I figured out, you know, maybe we should teach other people that this isn't the worst thing in the world, so that's kind of how it went. Now it's, you know, it's all encompassing now. I spend every minute of every day researching it. So podcasting is, as Gene and I have found it to be, more of a job than people even realize the amount of time you have to spend on it, right? Oh, I spend oh, hours and hours and hours on it. So uh, it's a good thing I like it. Uh, and hopefully, you know, maybe one day it will be a job. But for now, it's just an all-consuming hobby. Uh, it sucks you when you get started. You say, I'll dip into the waters and see what happens. And suddenly you have to swim. That's exactly right. On the Paracast, Rob Fitzgerald, he is the host of the Dead Science Podcast. And you learn more at deadscience.com. And... You, your answer to David raised a host of questions that I want to pursue. Number one of which, have you or someone in your family had some kind of near-death experience that would certainly create this interest? Well, yeah. Actually, um, I've had one. Um, I've never talked about it, never disclosed it, and I kind of thought I would do that at some point in my show when it was right. And, you know, it's, a, it's one of those stories that it's very easy to discredit because it happens to me and me alone. No one knows. But yet I know it was as real as it could be. And it was one of those things where um, it happened after the death of my mother. And, of course, everybody takes that immediately to be, oh, he's, you know, covering up or trying to heal himself or something. But I, I did very well with the death of my mother. We were never very close. And she passed away when I knew it was going to happen. And, you know, we had said final goodbyes and everything was fine. I never, like, had missed out on anything. So that wasn't it. But I did have an instance where, as awake as I am right now, 
something happened and I got literally pulled out of my body, looking at my body going, that's pretty odd. And the next thing you know, I'm standing there in front of my mother and a whole bunch of other people around and pretty much told me that uh, you're here because we want to answer some questions for you and that's your purpose in life. And that's how it started. So easy to call it a mental problem, but it definitely happened. Well, give us a little background, a little context on how this happened. Well, I was um, visiting, uh, I live in Washington, I was visiting Virginia, uh, my father, and this was probably six, seven months after my mother's death. And my father also, you know, has no paranormal beliefs or ideas or anything, but he had said that more than once he'd seen my mother. And I said, well, what do you mean you've seen her? He said, well, like a car will go by, and I'm sure she's sitting in it. He goes, maybe it's just, you know, me trying to heal from her passing. And they'd been divorced for years, too. So and I thought that was interesting. And then this happened. I was sitting on his couch alone one night watching TV. And like I said, the next thing I was standing there looking at myself, and the next thing I was in this huge, all-white, beautiful place, calm, more calm than I've ever felt in my life, happy, serene, and there's my mother standing there. Now, we communicated, but nobody ever spoke. So that's the, the odd thing is, every question I posed, it was like I knew the answer my entire life. Anything they would answer, they didn't answer everything. So it was pretty interesting. So this is actually what you're describing is an out-of-body experience. Exactly. And I've read about those, but I, you know, I'd never had anything like that happen to me. And uh, it was so real, you know, and I know I was awake when it happened. Um, it was kind of earth-shaking, but the moment when I was standing there, it was a little terrifying. But the moment I was in the, you know, I'll call the white place, it was as peaceful and natural as could be. It felt just the way it should be. Was there any kind of a transition from what was the, the specific feeling you had of the transition of going from from sitting there to now being outside of your body in another place? Uh, there was absolutely none. I was watching a TV show, I think Discovery Channel, into the show, nothing. And the very next thing, within a millisecond, I was standing there looking at myself. And, of course, that gets you going, whoa, 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 you know, what, what, what is this? And then, bam, I was gone to the white place. So there wasn't a lot of time to consider what had happened at that point. Hmm. And you say you saw your mother and other people? There were a lot of people there, and I kind of asked, and again, when I say asked, it's almost like I would think of the question and the answer was there. So I kind of asked, you know, where are we and what is this? And they said, well, this is where you go when you're traveling, and these people are all traveling. Traveling, they use that word. Yeah, and, and again, because to me, that word traveling meant to, you know, the next life, the next place, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, I asked, what's the next place? And I was told that's not something I should know. Really? Now, how long ago did this happen? Oh, that was uh, five years ago. Okay. Do you have a feeling for how long this transpired before you got back into your body again? Yeah, it felt like about 20, 30 minutes real time, um, but I got back to my body at the exact instance I left. So I remember the show was right where I had left it and nothing had changed, but it felt about 20, 30 minutes. What was your state of mind at this point? Were you just sitting back, relaxing, meditating, thinking about something in particular? No, uh, just watching the TV show. Um, it was something to do with uh, flying at that time. I don't remember what it was, one of those shows. And uh, no, I was not attempting to or think about it in any way, shape, or form. So, Rob, a couple of questions about that. Question A, what was your relationship with your mother? Were you close to her? And question B, what was your religious background growing up? My relationship with my mother, I was pretty close to her until my parents divorced. And that was at about 12 years old, I guess. And although I lived with her, I kind of became my own person and ruined my, uh, ruined, ruined my own life from that <laughs> point and 
Yeah, and uh, you know, it wasn't a sad thing. We we were just never close people. It wasn't like I was always yearning to be close. I was a middle child out of five. I was kind of a lone wolf my whole life. You know, I just never fit with them. They all live on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast. So there wasn't any problem with that. I've never had sadness over this relationship, not having one with her or any of that. And my religious background, she was Catholic, but we were never forced to go to church. And at one point, probably in my late teens, I kind of followed the Catholic and then left. Um, didn't have much to do with it. And then not much after that, uh, no real stern beliefs until, you know, much later in life when I started looking at uh, trying to get answers to, you know, what is this whole life thing meant. I kind of played with some religious ideas, but nothing stern, nothing strong. So there was no sort of a preconditioned, perhaps, belief system in afterlife, per se. No, definitely not. If anything, just the opposite. I knew uh, what I was hearing from the Catholic Church just didn't ring true. It didn't make sense. And um, at that point, I didn't, you know, I didn't know a lot of people that were into other religions, so I wasn't even questioning things at that point. I just knew what they were saying just didn't feel right with me. So I, I kind of left the Catholic thing, and so that's yeah, it's not right. That they're they're off. Hmm. Well, I'm sure some of our listeners are going to end up writing in emails accusing More us of like having. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we uh, perhaps take a bit of a hard stance on. Uh, organized religion on the show we have odd relationships with it and it, it's interesting to talk about paranormal stuff when people ultimately see religion as something that's completely acceptable and don't necessarily look at it in a paranormal context but yet are willing to look at things like life after death or any of the other you know man, many topics we talk about on the show ufos ghosts and stuff like that and they lump that into a paranormal belief system but religion ends up sort of getting a bit of a free ride. Now, on your show, you talk about these topics. What kind of response have you found from listeners when you bring up anything regarding religious belief systems and death? Well, my listeners seem to not have an issue with any of that. They seem, I try really hard to stay middle of the road on it, and mm -hmm. they, I think they appreciate that. I don't take a stand one way or the other, although I am planning on doing a series of shows where I, I look at it very hard from the Christian side and perhaps from the Jewish side and from the Muslim side, but the only time I get into trouble with them is if I take a political stance. Then they really come after me. Huh. They do that to us sometimes, too. <laughs> I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support 
this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Rob Fitzgerald, host of the Dead Science Podcast, joins us. You can learn more from deadscience.com. David. Well, you can ask questions too, Gene. Oh, gee, I can? Yes, you can. All right. Okay. Now, okay. So having started the show, having had this either a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience, whatever, from that point, what is your frame of discussion on this particular show? Is it strictly life after death, or is it exploring life extension? What what are you covering on this program? Well, right now, I, I kind of planned it out, and I'm going to kind of go through the human side of it first, and you know how and why people die, and how and why people murder, and kind of get that out of the way, and that's what we're doing now. And then we're going to kind of go into the belief system. You know, why do people have their beliefs they have? And then we want. I'm going to move into the research side of what do we know for sure that's out there you know what kind of things can we validate and base it on so at the moment we're still doing a lot of shows on murderers multiple murders and that sort of thing well in terms of what we know rob i mean what does science know about death and what comes during and after death what do we is there an ability to know about anything scientifically in terms of dealing with the after death experience well there there doesn't seem to be actually there seems to be the problem is even if there's data collected it's kind of whitewashed into the the rest of the world of it doesn't fit so we're not going to look at that data um, mm-hmm. there's some great research done children experiences pre-death after death but it's automatically categorized as nuts and god it's washed right off the page why i think it because it's uncomfortable i don't think a lot of people like to look at it and I think it's easy to wash off, and anything that doesn't fit with scientific um, today, what we know as science, must not be true. That's kind of the theory on it. And, and just for looking at it, you're discredited sometimes. Have you found that being interested in this topic and talking about it has any effect on your professional life? I know that I've listened to the show, and you actually keep your career pretty much separate from any discussion of what's going on with death. I mean, you don't really identify what it is you do for a day job. And I suppose we could ask you that, but you probably won't answer it, will you? <laughs> yeah, I don't, because they don't apply to each other, and, and there's no need to. I don't know that there'd be a problem with it. There probably wouldn't be, but it's um, it's A and B, and I like them that way, and maybe at mm-hmm. some point they'll cross, but for now, I'm keeping them that way separate. But there has to be a professional involvement with the topic of death at some point. I mean, you don't just make a podcast show about something like this without having some real practical understanding of it, right? Right. 
Right. Well, my past, I'll talk gladly about that, where, where all that came from. So uh, just the current spot I'm at doesn't, uh, doesn't really apply. I don't have that much to do with death anymore. But in my past, I certainly did. In what way? Well, the most recent past, um, I was a special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And in that capacity, in the beginning, I was working mostly criminal cases. So I went to lots and lots of murders, deaths, uh, suicides. It got to be the running joke that if I was the agent on duty that night, there was going to be a death. Somebody was going to kill themselves. So, you know, morbid, but kind of true. You were the Sergeant Colombo or Lieutenant Colombo of the OSI. Well, uh, yeah, what happens is you're broken down into units and, uh, you know, area or base will have a group of agents depending, you know, one, three to 30, I guess. And you take turns being on duty. And if I was on duty, somebody was going to (laughs) die. So I don't know why that was. I don't think there was anything to it. It just kind of worked out that way. So, you know, you'd end up opening all these cases on uh, suicides and things like that. So Now, these were only Air Force cases you were dealing with, or you guys brought in to do civilian stuff as well? Yeah, we were brought in on about everything just because, you know, we had the level of training and we were local. And most of my time was overseas. And overseas, it's a whole new game. You're you're pretty much on a level with everybody. So lots of civilian cases and anything that was even near a military base could affect the base. So we would be brought in on it. And in the Philippines, where I worked there, we were law enforcement. There wasn't much else in the, in the country. So we did everything there. Really? Being that this is the Paracast and being that you were in the Air Force, anything about... UFOs that you heard of that you can yeah, tell us? Yeah, let me, let me tell you a little story about that. I have two stories. The first one will be very interesting to you. In the Philippines, when we worked there, at one point, like 500 rounds of ammunition came up missing. And we all knew immediately it was our houseboy. We'd have a local national that would clean. And we knew he stole it, no question about it. But we had a brand new commander in the unit who decided this was going to be his case and he was going to prove that it was one of the agents who stole it, which is ridiculous. So he decided he was going to make this accusation and all of us were going to be polygraphed and so forth and so on. And we were pretty upset about it. Most of us decided we were going to turn in our credentials and walk because they can't keep you as an agent. It's up to you. And in the middle of that, we had one agent, and I won't disclose his name, but the minute they said polygraph, message traffic came in and said, you're never going to polygraph him. You're not going to talk to him. You're not going to do anything. End of story. It's over. So when I got to him and said, why are you so special? He said, well, I, I was assigned you know, out at Groom Lake, Area 51 at one time. I said, well, now you got to tell me everything. You know, I have an interest. you got to tell me. He says, I'll never tell you a thing. I'll never tell anybody. And I said, well, then, you know, how do I know you know anything? He said, if I told you what I know, what I could disclose, it's beyond what you can conceive. He goes, it's way beyond what anyone conceives is out there and would exist. So take that for whatever it means. Um, he was a very honest guy. I knew him real well, so I believe what he says. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Rob Fitzgerald, who is the host of the Dead Science Podcast. That's a Dead Science just with sounds.com and we have a link to at the paracast.com website and now you've opened up so many possibilities Ooh. here 
Sure. More than maybe we anticipated. So, okay, so you talked to this guy, and he basically said, I can't tell you anything. Well, I mean, what did the guy, what was the guy's body language when he told you this? I mean, you were sitting right in front of him, standing in front of well, him. Yeah. I mean, what? And you need to remember, I mean, I was a special agent trained in the read technique, and, you know, I can read people like a book. I mean, I know when people are lying to me. It was just a normal, honest conversation. He was telling me the truth, and uh, he did actually have some awards. The big thing with all Air Force personnel is they have an I Love Me wall, and you have your certificates in all these places you've been. And he was definitely assigned out in Nevada out there. There's no doubt about it. He worked out there. So, you know, whether what he did, who knows? But he was telling the truth, no doubt about it. I looked him, you know, square in the eye, and he was telling me the truth. And I'd worked with him for months on end, and we'd covered each other's backs in some pretty life-threatening situations. And, you know, I'd, I'd trust and believe him. Okay, but certainly he never revealed anything more to you about the stuff he was hinting at. No, never a thing. And to me, that actually adds some credence to it because... He was keeping his mouth shut about something for sh- for certain. He wasn't talking on purpose. Well, did he seem scared about it? I mean, when he told you, did he get defensive at all? No, not at all, because I would try, you know. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd try to get tidbits, and all I'd ever get is just a smile out of him. Um, what, his words were final. He wasn't going to add a single word to it. You know, so couple <laughs> that with the, the fact that he, they were refusing to allow him to be uh, interrogated or polygraphed. Yeah, it sure indicated to me that there's something there. But not just some sort of esoteric technology, he kind of implied that it was beyond conception. Oh, right. Well, you know, we both had top secret or higher clearances, and we both worked in intelligence uh, off and on, so that kind of stuff we would talk about all the time, you know, the little political dirty secrets of the world we knew about, so if it was anything along those lines, he wouldn't have had any problem with bringing him out, but he was indicating that this was beyond anything I would have conceived in my own mind at all. It was it was farther out than that. Oh, boy. Okay, so you had a top secret clearance. Yes, I did. Okay. Now, in what area? Because you were involved in criminal investigations. So where was your top secret clearance? What did it cover? Well, it was it was just a general top secret clearance at that point. That was when I was, oh, I guess I had just been out of the academy maybe a year or so. So now what would happen is, though, although I worked in CRIM at that time, as they called it, if a protective service operation happened, we'd fill in. If the, you know, the homicide group had a problem, we'd fill in. If we were doing intelligence and they wanted an unknown face and they wanted a source meet, you know, we'd fill in there. So although... You, I was assigned to the criminal branch. We covered all areas at that time. We did a little bit of everything. You indicated a second story, Rob. Yeah, this one is, well, my last assignment in OSI, I worked in Europe, and I was assigned protective services to the commander of all air forces in Europe. He's called Think You Safety, commander in charge of United States Air Forces Europe. And his name was General Robert Oakes, and this can all be looked up, of course. And he would get briefings, I mean, on a level way beyond things I was privileged to. But he would get these particular briefings, and they were called blue paper briefings. And he would read them, and they would immediately destroy these things. And they weren't anything to do with war or troop movements or anything, because I had access to all of that. I knew all of that. And from time to time, you know, they get comfortable with you because you're with them all the time. They would be mentioning it to someone else while we were perhaps riding around. We had armored Mercedes that we moved them in. And they would be talking about things. And every once in a while, you'd hear a little tidbit slip out about, you know, this project that I never heard the name of, and this other little thing that they were working on and how was that and did we find anything new so there was something that you know do i know it was paranormal no i felt it was i felt there was something there you know because you would get these 
and then they would go, you know, back to some of the bases where I knew there was kind of high-level secret stuff being stored and those things. So just a general feeling, but, I mean, I was near it. So, there, you know, nothing directly I can tell you. And if I did, I couldn't tell you, but I don't. I don't have anything direct on that, just mm. that I saw it happen. Hmm. Well, that's quite a cliffhanger there. <laughs> it's going to be hard to Sorry, follow that one up. Yeah. No, I know. We're going we're gonna to have to um, put you into truth serum now, sir. We have a special online version we're beta testing for the government. And uh, five... Four, three. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> enough of that bad joke. So, Rob, let's get back to death here. Okay. You talked about this experience with your mother. Um, From secrecy to death. That's a certainly well, an interesting segue, but I agree with you. Let's around. talk about that. Well, we have to respect Rob's discretion here. I mean, he this is a person who obviously could lose something if we try to pry the information or try that new technology we have that we're beta testing. Shh, don't so, say that. Don't, I didn't, I didn't bring it. it up. I didn't say anything. Not the B word. So, Rob, when you're interacted or you say you interacted with your mother in this situation, can you give us a more detailed idea of what what kind of information was imparted to you? Yeah, let me, uh, well, we talked about religion earlier, and I asked about that. I kind of had the question of, you know, what religion is right, I guess, or what one do I need to think about? And the answer was, it's all man-made. It doesn't matter at all. It's all for man. And I felt that was, you know, not a complete answer, but I got what they were saying, that this was something that man had come up with. That this may not have been the word of God or however you want to phrase it, but it was something we did. And that kind of rings true if you look at it. I would say that's compatible with my own worldview. And there now we're going to get a whole avalanche of emails. Sorry, folks, we're having an honest discussion here. Rob, when this... Um encounter ended what did it feel like was there a transition going back so to speak to your own body uh, again it was almost instantaneous they, they kind of let me know that okay if there's nothing else you want to know and i i guess i was actually thinking my god i can't think of enough questions to ask and they said no you've asked the ones you came that we know you needed to ask and bam it was gone just like that there was no goodbye none i'll see you later son in heaven or nothing like that but i also didn't feel like i'd missed out on anything i felt complete at that time so quite strange feeling but uh, right back to where i was like nothing had occurred well so what else did you ask i mean you say well there were, there was... i asked about who gets to go here and the immediate answer was everybody and i said well wait a minute what about hitler and i specifically said hitler and they went none of that matters and I said, none of what? None of what you do in your body matters. So that's the one I have the most problem with myself. You know, it just doesn't wash with absolutely everything any religion or any belief has ever told you. But that's what the answer was. None of it matters. Here's an odd question. Have you ever been tested for any kind of epileptic condition or seizures? Yeah, I've had pretty uh, extensive physical uh, testing. At one point, I was going to enter the Air Force uh, pilot program and went through, you know, every wire button and thing you can push into a human body. Um, and I had no issues like that at all and of course extensive uh, psychological testing when i became an agent so yep mm -hmm. been through all that too why are people so fascinated with the mechanics of death rob there's in the culture especially now there seems to be an almost unnatural preoccupation with it or has it always been there but it's more visible in the media these days what is it about death yeah. that people find or just not death but the mechanisms of death i think it's always been there but now because we have you know the internet and podcasts and we can share information and you can share it anonymously i think you can ask those questions you know online or in an email that you wouldn't ask someone you know um so that may be because they're definitely drawn to it uh, if i do a show you know the more kind of gruesome or detailed it gets or the more inside the head of the person i get 
you know, it spikes. People definitely like that. The email traffic it goes crazy. I don't know that we got an answer there. Why, why are people so obsessed with the specifics? It seems like, and I've, I have to qualify this, Gene is a fan of the CSI shows. I've never seen any of them. So I, I to me, seeing blood and guts is not something I find personally compelling. But why is it that those shows are, are so intensely popular? I think it's because a lot of people spend a lot more time thinking about their own demise or trying not to think about it, maybe. So when it's right in front of them, you know, I think they're looking for an answer. Maybe they watch CSI because they might pick up something regarding their own existence, perhaps. And I, I know it's definitely true. Um, even the agents, if we would have a murder or a, a suicide, it would seem like these are guys that this is all we did, and yet every one of them kind of wanted to get a look at the scene and see what it was. So you're definitely right. There's a part of us that draws us to it, and, you know, my show's kind of proof of it. Uh, thousands of people listen so they can just hear about someone else's death, and maybe it's a part of us. I don't know if it's natural or why it is, but some people don't, which is odd to me. have no interest, and some people are 100% drawn to it. So and the topics you've discussed on your podcast, what are the ones you found people have the most visceral reaction to? Well, two of them. When I did this show on the death penalty, of course, that opened the political door, and I tried mm-hmm. not to, and I several times said, I'm not going to go there. I got lots of hate emails. One person really went after me and really wanted to, I think, do me harm, but um, it wasn't too worried about it. But the one that gets that the reaction about death is when I told a first-hand story about uh, one of the agents I worked with that had his wife murdered. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen. During the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Rob Fitzgerald, the host of the Dead Science Podcast, talks to us. And now you're referring to a specific case. That right. This is one you investigated, right? Right. What happened um, in the Philippines, we had, he was a special agent, but his whole job was to deal with our uh, evidence and to take care of that, which was a massive job there. You know, he had 30 agents collecting everything you can think of. 
So he had been over there in the Philippines without his wife, which wasn't unusual. A lot of people didn't bring their families there because it was a pretty dangerous place. And suddenly, you know, he was a player. I mean, he ran the bars and he did all that, which a lot of us did because that was kind of part of our job to know the intelligence of what was going on and the anti-terrorism and what would affect the base. So they encouraged us to do that. So that wasn't too odd. But suddenly he comes up and says, oh, my wife Julie is coming to the Philippines and she'll be here, you know, Tuesday or whatever it was. Okay, maybe he had a change of heart. But within a month, she turns up dead. It was pretty obvious that we thought, you know, geez, he had something to do with this. So um, we investigated, and sure enough, in the end, he ended up copping to it to avoid the death penalty. So so he was the one. Why did he, well, not that it means anything now, but what happened? Why did he do this? Well, the oldest story in the book, he was sending all his money back to the States. He had two kids. Uh, I guess they were about somewhere between 10 and 12. So he didn't want to do that anymore. And, of course, he upped his insurance, you know, he upped the life insurance, which you'd think is a pretty stupid move on someone who should know better. But he had spent the year before pulling case files on murders where we had made mistakes, and he was kind of constructing his case based on that. And then he started his own uh, secret file that we didn't know about at that point on how he was going to pull this off. So he thought he'd kind of outsmarted the system, but it didn't work out that way. He wrote everything down? He, uh, well, here's another great start. <laughs> He had written it all down in a computer, and this was back in, you know, the 80s. So computers, you know, we weren't networked or anything like that. We actually had pretty sad systems back then. And, yeah, he'd written it down, and it was on a floppy. I don't even think he had a hard drive in his computer. And at one point during a subject interview, they brought him in, and he had this metal box on his desk. Now, if you have a shared desk, there's no expectation of privacy. Anybody can go in it. But this was his own private box, and it was locked. So we were going to need a warrant to search it. So they brought him in and asked, do we need a warrant or can we look in that? And he says, oh, I'll open it for you. So he opens the box, reaches in, grabs that floppy, pulls a big pair of scissors out of his pocket and starts cutting the floppy disk up right there. Yeah, now, the the part that really got me is I was walking down the hall and someone grabbed me and said, come here, come here, come here, and pulled me down the hall. Now, we used to play a lot of practical jokes on each other, and I thought, oh, something neat's going on. I'm going to go see it. And they throw me into this room, and there he is with a pair of scissors screaming like a madman, and now he's swinging them and threatening to cut everybody up. They had grabbed me because I was armed at the time. I had my sidearm on. So, you know, I drew my weapon on him and screaming and yelling at him to drop it. And just at the point where I realized I'm going to have to shoot him, and he watched my focus go from him to the front side of the weapon, which is anyone that will tell you that's how you fire a weapon properly, he realized I was going to shoot him, and he dropped the scissors. And the incident ended right there. So to go to the next step, the agents that were there took the floppy and threw it in the garbage can. And I just knew that wasn't right. So I took those pieces, I put them in envelopes, I wrapped them up in foil, and we started making phone calls. And eventually the floppy disk was put back together, and that's what convicted him. So I got a lot of credit for that. But someone else took the credit later on for the like, putting the floppy disk together, which was kind of funny. Well, that's got to be some crazy stuff at this point. You know, if you try to destroy like a CD-ROM or a DVD, I think it would probably be almost impossible to reconstruct right. it just because of the density of it. We're talking about probably a fairly low-end magnetic floppy disk technology where the bits were big enough, so to speak. The the chunks of ferrite on the, uh, the disk itself were big enough because the density was so low in that storage medium that you could actually reconstruct the data. I think it'd be much harder today. Oh, I think so, too. Um, but back then, you're right. And it, it, the guy actually did it, um, and he got a lot 
lot of credit for it, and you can kind of search the web and find it. He actually glued the pieces onto a piece of cardboard and played with the head adjustment until he got it back, and he got like 80% of it recovered. So um, everyone else said it couldn't be done, but this guy did it, uh, and I think he was an Air Force guy too, so it was kind of interesting. Hmm. They'll move that now and make sure it was the Marines and put it on an episode of NCIS. There you go. I'm surprised it hasn't been. It was funny because several years later, I was reading a forensics manual, and there was a guy in there talking about how he had saved the pieces and put them together and solved this case. And he wasn't even there. He wasn't even in the you know that part of the world, as far as I know. I believe he did get in some trouble for that after, but it was pretty interesting. Now, taking this forensic background, this background of criminal investigation, in approaching life after death stories and the things that you deal with on your radio show what kind of perspective does it give you well you know it's interesting because one of the ones that i have the most i guess natural draw to is just trying to solve this mindset of suicide people die and they're murdered and you know the money and greed and that happens but when there's a suicide it doesn't really fit anything else because you know it just seems that it's really hard to wrap your mind around that and figure out what they were and i've kind of decided you can't i just don't think you can get into that mind until you're in that position because I've seen people kill themselves over you know what I would consider to be ridiculous things and I've seen people that were in horrible situations and maybe that was their only way out but so looking at the forensics of it is you know is the mechanism but the why is where the question really lies okay so just looking at this here do you feel there are situations then where maybe they're too apt to say this is a suicide maybe there are some extenuating circumstances or other situations involved well I'm sure that happens you know one example of it is, what do you do with a suicide when the guy doesn't die? And from an investigative standpoint, if someone attempts suicide, if it's an attempt, there's a whole investigation that has to be opened. Yet if it's a gesture, you only had to write like a one-page report. <laughs> so you definitely try to get the doctor to push this thing into the gesture category. And I know I've done it myself because you just don't have the time to handle the workload of this. So you try to push these over into the gesture thing. So, you know, so does it happen on the other end where a suicide versus a murder? Oh, I'm absolutely sure it does. Mm. Okay. I'm not going to ask you about whether George Reeves was murdered or shot himself. That's the actor in the 1950s, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, who played Superman. No, that, yeah. I'll tell you, it's one of the Hollywood mysteries that still persists. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Rob Fitzgerald, and he is the host of the Dead Science Podcast. Fast question, Rob. What is, do you think is the strangest case you've talked about on your show? Well, I'll tell you what's a weird one. The one I'm working on right now is is really odd for me, and that's the Green River Killer. I mean, here's this guy that's a, you know very, the most prolific serial killer in history, and I read all the material on him, and then I just interviewed him 
his defense attorney. And, you know, this guy just does not fit anything. I, I mean, like, he's the guy, no doubt. But none of the reasoning or the whys or any of that fits, which kind of blows the whole thing out of trying to categorize these people and put them together. I mean, he's just a, he's not very smart, um, very unintelligent. He's not sneaky. He's not tricky. He's not uh, overtly insane. I mean, you don't see it in his personality. So it's a strange case. You know, I, literally, he killed a lot of these women because he didn't want to spend money on the sex. He didn't want to spend the $30 and he wanted it back. So you just can't draw a bead on it. And he's a good case of that. So are we talking about upbringing, Rob? Are we talking about the physiological structure of some people's brains that facilitate this? Is it some combination of the two? Yeah, I think there is, actually. I, I think there's something in people. And, you know, it might be the value of life or the lack thereof. And that's the other thing with the Green River Killer. He had a very normal background. He had uh, normal parents, you know, had a brother and a sister on each side of him and, you know, no problems there. And the uh, FBI tried real hard to push him into their boxes. And uh, his attorney was pretty forthcoming about that. Matter of fact, they, they despise him now because he disclosed a lot of it in his book. And, and the thing with him is like, he wasn't smart so they could get him to say anything if you asked him the question 10 times in a row he kind of realized that's what you wanted to say and he'd say it so the uh, the fbi investigators did that to him and then they went see we know what we're talking about but it's real clear that they you know they don't and i actually have the dvds of those interviews and it's fascinating that they went, went right beyond the truth and went right to proving themselves right so you know it's got to be something in your mind that gets you there i mean how do you come up with this killing because he knew it was wrong he didn't like it and he didn't want to be caught yet it, it didn't slow him down at all i know that on a lot of these uh, killers that are executed rob uh, and correct me if i'm wrong there's a procedure where they do indeed remove the brains to study them to try to understand the context for how these people do what they do is that something that's produced any useful results scientifically no, been nothing yeah nothing from it most changes in the brain that they've seen are to do with intelligence or lack thereof but nothing on the killer end of it they've you know they x-ray them you know they biopsy the brain and they don't find anything there and that's probably just because of our inability to know what we're looking at i think when we understand the brain and how it actually works a lot better because there is definitely in life you know if they um if they cat scan one of these guys and do things it definitely operates differently but uh, as far as from looking at it uh, they can't seem to see any difference there so there's no way to sort of predetermine that someone has this tendency really no it doesn't look like that and you know of course the profilers will tell you they can do it but the truth is the profiles don't fit at all at all no they get smashed apart big time um, you know look at the zodiac case right now it's a big popular case because of the movie but one thing that's like about serial killers is they never stop well, this guy stopped. Uh, Gary Ridgway stopped. I mean, you know, a lot of them don't, but a lot of them do. You can make a profile. I can say it's, you know, a middle-aged white man and guarantee it's right. Okay, so there we go. I'm right. Every serial killer is almost fitting that profile. So see how smart I am? So it kind of goes along those lines. <laughs> it ends up being a situation kind of, it's like recursive, where the justification is found in the event. Exactly. Yeah. The Zodiac case has apparently never been solved. What are your feelings about it? Well, the show I did on that with uh, Tom Voigt, who's probably the leading researcher on that, the um, the interview I did with him, well, what had happened is they were looking through mail at the newspaper 
newspaper and trying to put together another story, kind of a newer angle on it. And a staffer found an envelope and said, man, that looks just like this letter that we know is a Zodiac letter. So they compared a few of them, had different people look at it, and then they sent it to Tom, who looked at it and said, that's him. And that envelope was from 1990, and it was a, kind of a crazy Christmas card thing with writing on it. So at least as far as 90, I would bet that he's still there. And I'm putting my money on someone in law enforcement or someone with law enforcement training just by the way it operated. And the fact that he was able to elude them. He kind of knew how to take that next step without getting caught, yet be right in front of them. So I'm pretty sure the person had law enforcement training. Well, can you give some specific examples of what would have tipped you off about that? Yeah, he uh, the one where he had shot a guy running away in the back, and he he did a really good job with it. Uh, he had a really tight group. It was good shooting. I, I do firearms instructing. It's part of what I do now, and that's tough shooting, and you don't get there to that level without some training. So, you know, it could have been military training, although the military training isn't usually that good. That's usually law enforcement training that does that. And then he was doing traffic stops when he'd stop these cars. You know, he'd park his car in a particular way that they teach you how to do it, and He'd put it, make sure his lights were in the mirror of the person. and I mean, every one of those is something that could be something else. But altogether, it tends, to, in my mind, to go towards that kind of training. In saying that, though, do you think we'll ever solve the case? Or is this going to be one of those legends that eventually this will just fade away? No, I, I think eventually it'll be solved because I think the problem is it's going to take a fresh look at it. And I, I honestly think it'll be someone who didn't study this case for a long time and is going to look at it and see what we all don't see and put it together and it'll come through. You know, either that or someone will confess it on a deathbed and there'll be evidence of it. So the person, you know, the Zodiac Killer made a big deal out of making himself known, you know, that you can't catch me. You know, his cryptology and all of that, we still haven't cracked all of his letters. You know, maybe they can't be cracked, but maybe they could be. So this person wants recognition, but they don't want to be caught. So I think at some point we're going to get that. Now, how many serial killers are there active around the world these days? Has anyone ever done an estimate of this? No, but I'll tell you, there's a lot more than you would think. Um, That was one of the things I discovered that, you know, you go to our state prison here, Walla Walla, and there's, you know, a dozen or more in there. And if you start looking at federal prisoners, you'll see multiple murders. Huge. I mean, they're, they're, they're everywhere. So it tends to be in the media because they look for that special one to kind of sell. But there's a lot more of this going on than people know. And the successful ones, of course, they could go on Discover for quite a while. Now, is this something where there's a deeper concentration, for example, in the United States versus overseas? Yeah, that's possible. Overseas, they look at things differently. You know, there's a good case of uh, a Japanese guy who not only was he uh, he was attempting to become a serial killer. He killed his first person, and then he ate that person. And he made no mistake about it when they caught him, uh, disclosing all of what he'd done. And he's now actually a celebrity in Japan. He had money, and he was able to get you know put into a mental hospital and freed later. He was cured. And he goes on talk shows and talks about this now, and he's a celebrity. So the rest of the world doesn't really look at it the way we do. Um, with the fascination in it and, and the brutality, it just doesn't seem to phase them as much as we get uh, upset by it. So you're going to tell me this guy has groupies? Yeah, he That's, does. He does oh, man. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, That's... they all do. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, I asked his attorney if I could possibly get an interview with him, and he said, no, Department of Corrections won't allow it. So, But, he, you know, I could write him, and right now he gets lots of letters from women 
you know, that are interested in marrying him and in love with this guy. And that's kind of common. I mean, Ted Bundy was tons of those letters. So there's a whole other issue at some point we need to look at is why does that happen? Well, I mean, I guess these women think that if they can change him, then they can change anyone. They can bring him around, right? Well, that could be part of it. I'm sure it is. Or they have a death wish, depending on your point of view. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> I don't know what that is, but someone needs to really look at that. It's just... That's kind of almost too creepy. That's... We've now crossed over from paranormal to, ooh, Abby normal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Before we get to Abby Normal, this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to the very normal, I think, Rob Fitzgerald, host of the Dead Science Podcast. So how often do you do these shows? Well, I I would like to say I get out three or so a month, but life gets in the way and sometimes it drops down to two or so. The big thing is, is the quality of the show. I wouldn't put a show out just to put a show out. So if I don't have the information ready, I don't push it out. So, you know, right now, Everyone's waiting to hear the interview from Ridgeway's attorney, and it's almost done the way I want it. So that'll probably come out this week. So maybe, you know, I'd like to get two to three out a month. So where do you plan to go from here? Do you think you'll get sponsors, you'll go network, you'll call Westwood One or Premier <laughs> Radio Networks, and soon we'll have the Dead Science radio show on every day of the week? Well, I don't think I could do it every day of the week. It's just unless they're going to give me a research staff. So, um, you know, where's it going? I don't know. I'd like to see it get big and I'd like to live off of it. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, that's great too. I've turned down some small sponsorships, you know. Um, it, it reminds me of Wayne's World. Remember when they were sponsored? Um, it's not going to be the Dead Science brought to you by ABC Coffin Company. So <laughs> oh, it's either going to go all the way or I'll keep it the way it is. Mm. By any chance, Rob, did you ever see that show um, Six Feet Under 
either when it was on? No, I don't think so. I don't watch a lot of TV, so I don't. Yeah, I don't get that. I've never, I've never seen Seinfeld, for instance, and any of those. So, no, I've never seen the show. No, it was a show about uh, a family that owned a funeral parlor. And actually, I don't watch much TV either. This is uh, a show that I ended up renting and watching on DVD, and it really was just fascinating to see this, the life of this family that had a funeral parlor and some of the strange stuff they basically dealt with. Lots of interesting interpersonal stuff. But if you had to choose one aspect of understanding death that really you think we won't ever really understand. I mean, there are so many aspects, the mechanisms of dying, what comes afterwards. What's the thing that you assume you'll never have a grasp on? You know, I don't think I can get my mind around this part of it. You know, most of the people I know are Christian at some level, practicing, not practicing. And the whole thing with the religion seems to be to get yourself ready so you can go to heaven and have that afterlife and have this great existence. Yet they seem to be the people that take death the hardest, and I just don't get that. Aren't you happy now that Grandma's where she should be? You know, and that one just fascinates me beyond anything else is the whole religious aspect and how it's supposed to prepare you, but it's also the worst thing at the same time. So that one really bothers me. Is it the method of dying that scares them or the notion that who they are, their ego will cease to be and they will be no more? It might be. Um, a part of it, too, I seem to think is people, they don't, they say they believe, you know, that I'm going with Jesus and I'm going to live beautifully, but I don't think they really believe that. And I, uh, I, this is the question I would pose to them, and I plan on this and see what I get for an answer. If tomorrow you could go to the doctor and get this magic inoculation that would allow you to live virtually forever, how many of you would go back to church? Well, I don't hmm. think very many would. <laughs> They're hedging their bets. I know. <laughs> <laughs> how would organized religion at that point? <laughs> deal yeah. with that this, of course the other question would be it's not just living forever but with what degree of health would you just right. keep deteriorating maybe slower so now we expect to be in a certain condition at 70, 80 or 90 would this now happen gradually between 70, 80 and 90 between 70 and 226 or something right well that's my biggest fear they're going to actually come up with this but I'm going to be 85 when they do it so uh, I'm not going to partake I'm going out I don't want to be 80 forever. I don't know. There's been a lot of science fiction written about the notion of immortality, and ultimately it ends up pretty much being a bum deal. I mean, just trying to control how you smell after 500 years is an insurmountable problem, apparently. Yeah, I agree. I, I did a show on um, cryogenics where they freeze you, uh, and there's very few people that do that. Uh, I mean, like 150 worldwide. So yeah, that kind of was interesting. I thought there would have been more, but there's not. Well, do they freeze you, or do they... I think I've read that in some of these places, and I think there's one particular project in the U.S. where they just freeze your your head, essentially. Right. Well, that's oh, that's the one that involved Ted Williams, the baseball player. Yeah. You know, the reason they do that is economics. It's X dollars for your head and ten times X dollars for your whole body. So if you can't afford it, you just get your head frozen. And now there's a guy who's going to freeze your DNA, so you can be recloned, I guess. So oh, it's kind of odd. I mean, if you believed in reanimation, I think you'd want your body there, too. But, uh, you know, uh, who knows? At least your hands. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, after all those years, I itch. There's nothing to scratch me. What do I, I do? I want to die now. <laughs> no, that, might, that might be hell right there. 
<laughs> I know for me it would be. Yeah. Mm. Let's look at a couple of things here. Now, obviously, a lot of the situations you talk about there are not paranormal, but basically studying, I guess, true crime, kind of a true crime kind of study right. of murderers and things like that. But what about the paranormal? Other than your particular encounter, what others have you explored or heard about? Well, I, I played around with EVP, uh, electronic voice phenomena, and got some strange, earth-shaking kind of results, and I applied it to myself. I had a brother who died, I guess, two years ago now, and um, I decided to try this EVP thing, so I studied it, and uh, there's a real big website on it, and I read and talked with those guys, and I got all set up. What had happened is my brother had died um, of a brain tumor, young, 34 years old, mm. and the task of doing the tombstone, it kind of fell back to me to take care of, which is a horrible problem to have because you sum up someone's life, you know, and a few words on a tombstone. So I didn't really know what to do. So I thought, well, let's let's give this EVP thing a try. So I set up a tape recorder and I record into it and, you know, ask, okay, you know, David, what's the deal? What do I do? What do you want me to do? How do I handle this? On and on. And, you, you know, you just record, then you play it back through a computer and you listen to it. And in that EVP, I got the message, motorcycle headstone. Now, you know, it's fuzzy and grainy, so, you know, you don't know for sure if that's what it says, but I played it for several people, and most people said, yeah, I hear that. That's what I hear. I called my oldest brother and said, what was it about David's motorcycle? What was so great about it? And he says, well, he loved his motorcycle. That's all he wants. So I thought, oh, he must want a motorcycle thing, right? He says, but, you know, he had this one sticker on his motorcycle that said, all I ever wanted was for my wife and girlfriend to get along, which is true. He had a wife and a girlfriend, separated from the wife, living with the girlfriend, couldn't afford to get divorced that whole mess. So I thought, well, clearer message has never been sent, and that's what's on his tombstone to this day. So came from EVP. And I did another EVP session on a guy who committed suicide that I knew. And the EVP, I said, you know, his name was Frank. And I said, Frank, tell us, what's going on, Frank? What happened? And in his voice, crystal clear, it said, questions about me. So what I did to verify that is played it for someone else who knew him well, but I didn't tell them what it was. I just said, hey, I'm going to talk to somebody on this tape, and I want you to tell me who I'm talking to and he went, oh, that's Frank, no question about it. Really? So then when I told him what it was, he really freaked out. He had a hard time with it. Are those files up on your website by any chance, Rob? Yeah, they're up in, uh, I think, show one or two. They're up in that in the front of the beginning. They're up there, so if anyone wants to hear them, they can listen to those shows. So During the first episodes you did? First or second, somewhere in there. I don't, uh, I don't have my site up in front of me, but it was one or two, something like that. I'm going to definitely have to go listen to those. Have you had anybody else who specializes in EVP listen to them at all? Yeah, I posted them up on that website, the uh, American Association of Electronic Voice Phenomena, and they have a board where you post them and you go through, and of course, they're true believers. There aren't any skeptics there, so right. they all supported it and thought it was there. You know, I, I, I can't hang my hat on it. I, you know, I don't know. All I know is what I heard. I think it's real. You know, who knows how the human mind functions? Am I able to fill in the blanks? I don't know, but definitely enough to make you raise an eyebrow and look into it. That's sort of the philosophy we have here on the Paracast. We don't necessarily know the answers to things, um, and we don't necessarily believe the easy answers. It's just important to ask the questions and to have discussions about these things. Exactly. Sounds great. This is DeadScience.com to learn more about it and like the Paracast. The episodes are free to download, so you don't have to go through all these complications or you can go to iTunes and subscribe. Rob Fitzgerald, we appreciate your wisdom, your experience, and maybe someday you can tell us more about your top secret knowledge on the Paracast. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney 
is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.